Good morning. Glad to be with you this morning and to have the opportunity to preach. I'm typically teaching the Bible in a classroom setting. And would you believe there are audacious students who see fit to jump in and ask hard questions and push back on things, which I actually appreciate. But I can't help noticing that when one preaches, one can just go, one can just talk uninterrupted for 30 minutes, 90 minutes, three hours. (laughs) See what happens today. Amen. That's a dangerous thing to say. And in any case, I'm feeling very spoiled by the passage that I was given this morning. I say that because Pastor Malachi has done enormous work, enormous work to guide our church through Romans 9 to 11. I would not even begrudge him an applause at this moment. I can't, I can't tell where he is, but uh, I wasn't sure if there would be an applause following that recommendation or not. But there was, so you're welcome, my friend. He mentioned hearing about one pastor who finished Romans 8, went on holiday, and then came back and resumed preaching in Romans 12. <laughs> Jody and I were at, actually at a church one time when uh, the whole thing just stopped at Romans 8. Bang, done. But Malachi has led us through chapters 9 to 11 with admirable clarity and pastoral insights. And there I am showing up late, showing up only when the great celebration begins at the end of Romans 11 to preach four whole verses. As Rex the dinosaur says in the movie Toy Story, great, now I have guilt. (laughs) But the earlier parts of Romans 9 to 11 do naturally build toward our passage. Paul has talked about God taking the initiative to choose sinners to become his children in Christ. Paul has highlighted the extraordinary grace and the justice and the authority of God. All have sinned and no one has deserved anything from God. But God has freely elected people and drawn them to himself, even as he has allowed some to persist in their sin. Moreover, in God's wise and gracious and just plan, he saves people from the Jewish nation, not every single one, but some, those who will put their faith in Christ. And God brings in people from the non-Jewish or Gentile families of the world. Paul says God grafts Gentile believers onto the people of God like branches on a tree. Remarkably then, God fulfills his promises to Old Testament Israel and extends his grace to the Gentiles. And it's discussing these lofty thoughts about God's work that leads Paul to break out into the praise of God at the end of Romans 11. And you'll notice that our passage this morning does focus directly on God, which means that our sermon needs to focus directly on God, or especially on God. So this won't be a sermon focused on something like surface-level needs or wants, which is not how Trinity Bible Church begins its approach to things anyway, important as such things are in their proper place. This is a text about God, and then from there, we'll connect that to our spiritual lives. The importance of not just doing things in our spiritual life, but actually knowing God himself is something that I'll often try to illustrate by referring to the work of a surgeon. I have no experience of performing surgery, so Josiah Wagler, who may in fact be performing a surgery right now and not in the pew today, Josiah Wagler can correct me if I make any wrong statements. But my sense is this, it is crucial for a surgeon not only to know the movements you make with the surgical instruments, but also to know what the parts of the human body actually are and how they work. In other words, pro tip, it would be bad if something needed to be modified or reworked in the midst of a surgery 
And the surgeon said, actually, I have only memorized the hand motions that one typically makes. I don't really know what any of this stuff is or what it does. Likewise, in the Christian life, it would be a mistake to think only about trying to do stuff without actually grounding all of that in a strong knowledge of who God is and what God is really like. Because even though a theoretical understanding of things sometimes gets a bad reputation in our culture, as if it were a waste of time, it turns out that good practice requires good theory. I can't help but noting that my eyes just, just gazed across Joshua Pringle's face and I didn't mean to leave out the other expert surgeon in our midst. <laughs> so if in fact, it's okay for a surgeon only to know how to do stuff like this, he can correct me if I was incorrect in making my <laughs> statements about the importance of uh, actually knowing stuff about how things go. But good practice requires good theory. And furthermore, the knowledge of God that we're after in today's sermon is in fact connected to love of God and worship of God. So my recommendation to you this morning is take your eyes away from yourself, your own sins and your own problems, the sins and problems of others, and think about the good and gracious and holy and sovereign God who just is who he is. I know that I often come to church with my problems weighing on my mind only to have to look outward toward Christ and have my view of life enlarged and have new strength for dealing with the realities of life. And I think this passage has something important for you, whether you are a seasoned Christian or someone who is just examining the Christian faith and figuring out what to think. As we look at the passage this morning, I'm hoping to highlight four things. So if you are a note taker, you can anticipate four elements of the sermon, the wisdom of God, the self-sufficiency of God, the grace of God, and the glory of God. Those are the wisdom of God, self-sufficiency, grace, and glory. Let's turn first to the wisdom of God. Look at verses 33 and 34 again. Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? So in verse 33, Paul talks about the wisdom and knowledge and judgments of God. And just briefly, when he says judgments, that word often refers to a legal verdict. God does warn about condemnation for those who reject his son and promises justification or forgiveness for those who trust in his son. But judgments has a broader meaning here, referring to all of God's decisions about what will take place in history. Also, just briefly in verse 34, Paul echoes Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah 40, verse 13, where Isaiah asks, who has ever provided counsel to God? That's what Paul is talking about here. A counselor in the sense of someone who provides guidance and input for strategizing and making decisions. God has never had or needed one. Now let's think especially about God's wisdom here. What is wisdom? Well, wisdom is a knowledge of deeper or underlying things that enables someone to make good judgment calls. The wise person doesn't just have a superficial look at things. The wise person knows the underlying factors or the higher realities that are in play and can make the ideal decision about something. We've all recognized wisdom in different situations in our life. You've been sitting around with a group of people trying to make a decision. Someone blurts out some plan that is 
terribly unhelpful and it will only make the problems worse and alienate people and you think that's not it. The next person says something a little more insightful, a little bit more helpful, but then the next person speaks and you think, this guy knows what he's talking about. He has taken into account all of the factors and is proposing something that is exactly suited to the need of the hour. And you say, yes, that's exactly right. Let's do that. That's what wisdom looks like. So when we talk about God's wisdom, we're talking about God, we're talking about God's knowledge of the deep things, the higher things, his knowledge of how things can and should work so that he is fit to make the perfect decision about everything. What do we learn about God's wisdom here in Romans 11:33 to 34? Well, if you're looking at the text, we learn that it is deep. We learn that it is unsearchable, unsearchable, unfathomable. You could never get to the bottom of it. And we learn that it doesn't come from someone else. Just by virtue of being who he is, God is full of perfect wisdom and doesn't have to acquire it from somewhere else. This is a very fascinating description of God's wisdom. On the one hand, we do know something about God's wisdom. Paul has just walked through God's plan of salvation for both Jewish and Gentile believers. Paul's amazed by the wisdom of God, wisdom of God's plan that he's just written about in chapters 9 to 11. And that's why he breaks out into praise at the end of chapter 11. But then even in the midst of knowing something about God's wisdom, Paul contemplates the fact that God's wisdom is still infinite, so it's not as if we could ever comprehend it fully. This is a matter of encountering God's wisdom and so truly knowing something about God, but then also standing back and saying, but wait a minute, one of the things that I know is that there just is so much that I don't know and can't even get to the bottom of. As Christian believers, we do know God, but one of the things that we know is that we can never comprehend God. That, by the way, will be at the heart of our eternal joy in God's presence. Having a face-to-face -face vision of God and yet never being able to exhaust the infinite wisdom and goodness of God for all eternity. I'm reminded of something Job says in Job 26.14. In chapter 26, he's talking about the wisdom and power that God shows by doing stunning things in his creation. He governs the clouds and the seas and so forth. And then Job says, these are but the outskirts of God's ways. Now, as believers living after the time of the first coming of Christ, we do know more, but Job's basic point still holds up. Imagine you have friends who let you know they're visiting, they're in town visiting the valley, and they say, yeah, right now we're at the heart of Phoenix, right in the thick of things, having dinner. And you think, well, maybe they're down on Central Ave and Camelback having pizza at Lou Malnati's, if that location still exists. I didn't invest sermon time in verifying whether Lou Malnati's has all of its previous locations that I knew about, but that maybe they're having dinner there or they're downtown or something like that. And then they share their location with you and you say, Queen Creek. <laughs> I wasn't a geography major, but something is off. There's nothing wrong with Queen Creek, but relative to the Phoenix area, that's the outskirts at most. Likewise, even in the things we understand of God's wisdom, even in our grandest thoughts about God, we thought maybe we were getting to the bottom of God, but we weren't even in Queen Creek. As Paul indicates, the right response to such a God is to honor him and to love him, and to praise him. But let's also think about some ways that this teaching should bring a comfort to our life as well. 
two things here. First, there are a lot of evil and broken things in the world that are yet to be resolved. Some of those are broader things concerning countries and states and so forth. Some of those are more individual things, persistent things in your life that you would change if you could, but they are just there. Health problems, personal loss, difficulty with people close to you, job situation, financial situation, school situation, and we could add more things. Well, God is never the author of evil and is never malicious, but he is the one overseeing all of your life, including that thing that Ecclesiastes calls a crooked thing that just won't fit right or get straightened out, like a log on a pile of wood that is shaped in a weird way so it will not stack neatly. All of us have something like that in our lives. We have questions about it. We want to ask God, why is God doing things this way? Or why is he permitting such and such to be the way that it is? Well, bearing in mind that God himself is never the author of evil and bearing in mind that there are some harmful situations that we can and should simply flee from right away, the question that the Christian believer has to ask about the ordinary, persistent, frustrating things is, do I believe that these things have come into my life in accordance with the infinite wisdom of God? Do I believe that what God does in my life is exactly calibrated to mature me, to make me more like Christ, and to bring me to everlasting joy? Fully trusting that is not something that comes all at once, comes over time and living with God through the situations of life and gathering encouragement from brothers and sisters in Christ. And one point of encouragement, I think, is this. God does things in strange ways. We've seen it before. In order to bring his Messiah and his kingdom into the world, God cast his people out of the promised land and let the temple get destroyed. In order to rescue us from our sin and death, God the Son, Jesus, subjected himself to crucifixion at the hands of sinners. And in order to fulfill his promises to Israel, God overturned their view of what the Messiah was supposed to be like, cut some of them off, brought some of them in, and then added in new branches that were not even physically descended from Abraham. That's some of what we've learned about through Romans 9 to 11. God does strange things sometimes on the macro level, and he'll do that in our individual lives as well for our spiritual benefit. And when we see him face to face and see his decisions for what they truly were, we will without hesitation say, that was exactly the right thing to do. A second, briefer implication, when we pray, we're not God's counselors. I think we know that, but maybe sometimes we act as if we were. We're not God's counselors. Paul has said right here in Romans eleven thirty four that no one is God's counselor. At first, you might think, well, maybe I wish God would take my input and do precisely as I suggest. And then you think, well, I'm basically an idiot. So <laughs> it's good news that God isn't doing whatever I suggest all the time. Our prayers are simply means by which God brings us in to participate in his plan, conforms our wills to his will, and yes, sometimes also does, Use them as means by which he does the very thing we've asked about. Let's now think about God's self-sufficiency as well from our passage. 
We've already begun to see God's self-sufficiency in verse 34 when we saw that no one has to inform God of anything. Then we read in verse 35, let's look what it says here. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Here Paul echoes something that God says in Job 41 verse 11. Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. No one can give something to God so as to put God in their debt. And as Job 41 indicates, everything that exists belongs to God already. Indeed, everything that is good and valuable came from him to begin with. Everything that's good is simply a little reflection of God's own infinite goodness and perfection. And if no one can put God in their debt, then God doesn't gain anything from anyone. And if God doesn't gain or need anything from anyone else, then just by being himself, God is always all set. That is what self-sufficiency signifies. God is entirely enough for himself, entirely satisfied in himself, and by implication is entirely enough for us as well. This shows up in various places in Scripture when God's people start to think that God needs their worship and their sacrifices. Listen to God's correction for them in Psalm 50. Beginning in verse 12, God says, If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Effectively, God tells them he wouldn't have to ask for something from them and P.S. he doesn't need anything anyway. The point of their worship is not to give God something, something that God needed in order to be fulfilled. The point of their worship is to draw near to God, to give thanks to God, and to receive God's good gifts. Listen to how Jerome, one of the great biblical scholars in the church's history, comments on the Psalms. He says, Other lords, although they may be powerful, nevertheless cannot say to their servants, We do not need your works, since they actually abuse their service. God alone is truly Lord, Jerome says, who would require the duty of his servants only for this, that he would have an occasion of giving more. One other place in Scripture that can be mentioned here is Acts 17, 24-25. There Paul is preaching to the philosopher types in Athens, and he says that God, the one who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't live in temples built by human hands and is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. Once again, God, just by virtue of being himself, is always all set. He values and enjoys our worship. The way that I might put this is he is happy about us, but he is not happy because of us. As though we were supposed to be the foundation of God's fulfillment and contentment, which is a burden that no creature was ever meant to bear. The analogy of a parent and child comes to mind, although parent-child analogies inevitably break down at some point when we're talking about God. Everyone can see the problem when parents have a child in order for the parents to become self-actualized. Maybe dad never became a professional athlete and he is bent on 
the son becoming one in order to validate dad himself. That's very different from a parent simply finding joy in the child's well-being and growth in the likeness of Christ. Now the analogy breaks down because human parents end up needing something, needing their children to take care of them, whereas God does not. He's the one that truly never grows faint or weary, as Isaiah 40 teaches us. I had a student one time, though, ask me, but isn't God better off with us? To which I immediately and happily responded, no. We don't make God any greater or better than he already was, which is good news because we creatures are not sufficient to be an anchor of God's contentment. Instead, we're invited to participate in God's eternally already established joy in the fellowship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is happy about us, but he's not happy because of us. Think of how God's self-sufficiency is good news for the work of salvation. He doesn't faint or grow weary, as Isaiah says. He created the world, and human beings nearly wrecked it through sin and violence in the book of Genesis. So God became weary and almost withered away, right? No, God goes on. God chose Abraham to be his special representative from among the nations. But then Abraham lied, and he made a mess of things by trying to do his own thing. So God got irritated and gave up, right? No, God goes on. God's people were stuck in Egypt and enslaved by Pharaoh. So God became discouraged and gave up. No, God goes on. God chose David to be king, but then David did just about all the major bad things that one can imagine. Adultery, manipulation, murder. Was God undone? No, God goes on. What about when Israel rebelled and went astray and filled God's land with evil and God sent them into exile? Was God overwhelmed, deflected from his plan? No, God goes on. In fact, Paul describes what God has done in Romans 9 to 11. God has already appointed and chosen a people for himself composed of both Jews and Gentiles. He brings them to faith in Christ and it never depended on the initiative or the reliability of sinful people to begin with. Think for a minute about the implications of God's self-sufficiency for our life. Two things here. First, the value of your life in the sight of God. According to some of the ancient myths written around the time of the book of Genesis, the gods were tired of working hard all the time. They created people to do their work for them and to provide them with things. In that sort of view, human beings don't have value in their own right. They're just around for someone else's self-actualization. But then Genesis comes along and teaches us that God was already God, by implication, already self-sufficient, and he just chose freely to make human beings. Why do you and I exist? Well, not because God had to make us, but simply because he liked the idea. That should have a profound effect on how you view your own existence. Second, Christian, in light of God's self-sufficiency, think about how solid your spiritual well-being is. If you have faith in Christ and belong to Christ, then the self-sufficient God who needs nothing from anyone, needs nothing from anyone and never grows weary, has pledged to preserve you in the faith. As Paul puts it in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. I'm reminded of a part of the, the Lord of the Rings, as I often am when talking about the Bible and theology. We could take a poll later about who is happy about this reminder and who's not happy about this reminder. 
But that's what happens when I'm thinking about the Bible and theology. I'm not sure how much this comes out in the movies, uh, maybe a little bit. But in the book, you learn that the elf Legolas, he doesn't really sleep. He and his companions are on a huge bone-crushing journey to rescue their friends from captivity. And his companions, Aragorn and Gimli, certainly need to rest. Legolas, though, when everyone else goes to sleep, he just stands there staring up at the stars. What does he need? Does he need food? Does he, does he need replenishment? Does this ever get awkward? He just stands there staring up at the stars. Now, even Legolas did need some help and sustenance at times, but think about God. There are a lot of evils and problems in the world. There are a lot of sins that we commit, and there are countless reasons that we might think God is fatigued. Is there any risk of God being done with me? No, he's fine. Yeah, but no, really, he's fine. When his children sin, he does sometimes withdraw the comforts of his presence in order to lead us back to repentance, which is what the talk about grieving the Holy Spirit is about in Ephesians 4.30. But is God literally damaged or weary? No, he's fine. Yeah, but no, seriously, he's fine. The psalmists sometimes think God is sleeping, but above and beyond any vitality and power, that Legolas has, God says, he who keeps you does not slumber or sleep. Psalm, 124, Psalm 121 verse 4. God has not and cannot lose one drop of his energy to bring you to your eternal home. He is the self-sufficient God. And let's consider the grace of God next. I take it that along with the self-sufficiency of God, and maybe even more directly than God's self-sufficiency, the grace is on display in verse 35. That verse again says, Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? No one could ever give something to God to put God in their debt. Paul made that so clear in Romans 9. Before any of us did anything, God appointed his own people to be vessels of mercy through faith in Christ. We bring nothing good to the table to secure our acceptance with God as if it originated from us. We can't even take credit for our own existence. Have you ever thought about that? We didn't even earn the right to exist, much less demand something from God. Every good thing is from God or is ultimately brought about by God, even when God kindly involves us in bringing it about. The one thing that is not caused by God is our sin. So congratulations to all of us. The one distinctive contribution that we bring to the table is our own wrongdoing. The human race didn't begin in a state of sin or alienation from God. But ever since humanity's fall into sin, we've been doubly indebted to God, not only as our creator, but as the redeemer and rescuer that we need. Maybe you're here and you've never really thought that through. You have some uh, awareness of God and know that we have some accountability to him but the details are fuzzy well according to what God has revealed to us through Jesus and through the Bible there is good news God created us and cares about us but then there's also bad news we've all turned away from God and deserve God's condemnation we don't honor God as we should we don't pay attention to him as we should we don't reflect his character in the way that we treat each other 
we act selfishly, and so on. You get the picture. We had no way to obligate God to get us out of that situation. But God still cares about his creation. As we just considered, he didn't have to make us. He wanted to. And he still intends to bring people back to himself through Christ. So God is gracious. He is gracious even though we can't repay the debt of our sin or our wrongdoing. He's ready to extend forgiveness and new life. He provided the payment of our sin through the death of Jesus on a cross. And Jesus rose from the dead to offer forgiveness and new life to everyone who turns their heart toward him and trusts in him to be their savior. There's absolutely nothing we can do on our own to merit or earn God's acceptance. And there's no degree of goodness that you have to reach before calling out to him to save you from your sin and condemnation. It's pure grace. Jesus did everything we needed. Then we simply reach out our hand to receive Jesus by trusting him. That act of trust is also paired with an act of turning away from our rebellion against God. And that turning away is called repentance. When you trust in Christ for forgiveness and new life with God and you repent of rebelling against God, you're not promising to be instantly perfect. That's not what's expected. But you are, in principle, choosing a new path, choosing a new life with God. So over time and by God's grace, you'll grow in obeying God and enjoying God more and more and being involved in the life of the church. If you're just beginning to figure out what that means, to trust in Christ for salvation, please talk with people at this church, with me, with pastors and elders, with church members around you. We would be glad to do that. Finally, let's turn our attention to the glory of God. Paul explains in verse 36 why no one has ever given to God so as to put God in their debt. Verse 36, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. No one can contribute to or provide for God because everything is already from God and it's sustained through God and it's oriented back toward God. God then is the the source, the sustainer, the goal of everything that exists from beautiful mountains and trees to animals to human beings and angels. Think about how much people in our society need to hear about this. God is the one they came from, the one who preserves their life, the one that they were made for. Many, many people don't know or try not to know that we come from God and are made for God, to live in communion with God, enjoying Him, representing Him, serving Him. In other words, people don't know or or they've tried hard to avoid what is the point of a human being. But Romans 11.36 and other places of Scripture teach us that the point of a human being is to know God, to live in friendship with God, to enjoy God, to represent God, to serve God in all that we do. Once someone sees that, all of a sudden, other things fall into perspective. Oh, that's why integrity matters. That's why holiness matters. That's why human beings end up damaging themselves when they try to recreate themselves according to random ideas that they have. And that's why Paul says, to God be glory forever. Now, what is glory? And in what sense do we give God glory? Well, glory, we could say, is majesty or splendor or preeminence. It has to do with the perfection or the greatness of God, but especially as his perfection or greatness is apt to produce awe and wonder 
and reverence in us creatures. The Israelites, for example, sang about God being awesome in glory when God led them through the Red Sea and drowned the Egyptian armies. So the word glory can represent the majesty of God himself or God's own being. But then sometimes, on the other hand, glory can signify the outward manifestation or recognition of God's majesty. That's a key distinction, the majesty of God himself or the outward recognition of God's majesty. In the first sense, we do not give glory to God. Does that make sense? We don't make God more majestic than he already was. Hopefully that makes sense. But in the second sense, regarding the manifestation or recognition of God's majesty, we do give God glory. That is, we may display God's majesty in our lives, or we may recognize and declare God's majesty. Let's think for a moment about how this connects to our lives as well. First, a clarification and then a comment on what it means practically to glorify God. So first, the clarification. We just went through how God doesn't need anything. He doesn't need us to make him better than he already is. So why would he demand that everything should be pointed toward him? Focused on the manifestation and the recognition of his greatness. Isn't that self-centered? Isn't that the mark of an egomaniac? Maybe you came to church and thought such question could ever be asked, but it's being asked from the pulpit right now. So you can breathe a sigh of relief if that's always been your question. Isn't that the mark of an egomaniac who wants to use people for his own self-actualization? Well, ordinarily, if someone says, another pro tip, these are all free. Ordinarily, if someone says, hey, it's all about me. Yes, that is the mark of an egomaniac. But you may have heard that God is rather different from us. He's the creator, he's not some creature, and he's not even a great big creature. God himself is actually the highest goodness and perfection and source of delight. There just is no other ultimate goodness and perfection and source of delight. So God directs us back to himself, not because he needs us to boost his self-esteem, but because there just isn't anything else to direct us toward. There just isn't anything else that can ultimately satisfy us. You want the highest goodness and perfection and wonder, where else is there to go? Every other goodness or majesty is only a faint echo of God's own goodness and majesty. It turns out that for God and for God alone, the most loving thing to do is to direct others back to himself as the ultimate object of their desires. Imagine you're at the Grand Canyon or if you Arizona natives are desensitized to the grandness of the Grand Canyon. I hope you're not, but I did once have a student say, it's just a big hole in the ground. And then after having a fist fight in the parking lot, we made our peace and <laughs> moved on. But if you're desensitized to the grandness of the Grand Canyon, imagine you're at Yosemite National Park or at the Pacific Ocean. It's a beautiful day, beautiful scene, but someone that you brought, who shall remain nameless, insists on not looking at the sights and only staring down at a little video game screen the whole time. My kids, in fact, have not done that, so I'm actually not calling any of them out. You might want to, if there were such a person, you might want to smack said person. But if the Grand Canyon or Yosemite Falls or the Pacific Ocean could speak, it would be right for it to say to the person glued to the video game screen, Stop looking at lesser things. Look at me and be filled with real joy. 
If it would be right for the Grand Canyon or Yosemite Falls or the Pacific Ocean to say that, how much more with God? Because glorifying God, pointing toward and enjoying the majesty of God is really the only way for the human creature to be satisfied and happy. Everything else is like playing a video game on a tiny screen in the parking lot at the Grand Canyon or Yosemite Valley. Okay, so what does it mean practically to glorify God in all that we do? Well, as we said before, it's not a matter of contributing to God's own being as if we could make him greater than he already was. But there are an infinite number of ways to exhibit the greatness and goodness of God in your life and to draw attention to it. You can certainly do that by speaking about God, particularly what God has done in Christ for the salvation of sinful people. You could do that at home. And to the extent that it is fitting and feasible, you can do that at work and school. Let me add that you can glorify God in various ways, even when you don't explicitly name the name of Christ. For example, you can glorify God by working on something with a thankful heart and producing something that reflects the wisdom and power of our Creator. You can glorify God by representing Him well in a difficult relationship and showing something of God's wisdom and kindness and righteousness. And you can glorify God by being attentive to Him, by being attentive to the ordinary means of grace that He gives us in the church, the Word of God read and preached, prayer, baptism, the Lord's Supper, daily prayer in your own ordinary routines. And my hope for us as a church and for you as an individual is that you will grow in resting in the wisdom and the self-sufficiency and the grace of God. And you'll seek to do all things in your life to the glory of God, to the manifestation and the recognition of God's majesty and goodness. Let's pray.